Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Here's how this podcast works. Each week we begin with about 7 to 10 minutes on the weekly parsha, hence the name 7-Minute Torah. You'll either hear me, or you'll hear me in conversation with a Jewish thought leader. After that, if you want to stick around, we often continue with a bonus interview where we talk about all things Jewish. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm going to jump right into the interview because it's really interesting. We're talking about Parshat Pekudei, which is the last Parsha in the book of Exodus. And I'm talking with Rabbi Barry Block. I'll introduce him in the interview in just a moment. And just a reminder that the first seven to ten minutes or so are about the Parsha. And after that is the bonus interview, which this week relates quite closely to the topic of the Parsha. We'll talk a lot about the Jewish context of social justice and racial justice, especially in the American South. Rabbi Barry Block, welcome to 7 Minute Torah. It's great to be with you. Likewise, I am thrilled to be able to talk to you today. We're going to talk Parsha for a little while, and then we're going to talk about whatever we decide to talk about Jewishly related. So let me introduce you briefly, and then I'll introduce you more in full after our our break. But you are the rabbi of Congregation B'nai Israel in Little Rock, Arkansas, to which I have to add the obligatory, there are Jews in Little Rock, Arkansas. Absolutely. We have a congregation of 330 households. Wonderful. And as you know, I actually know that because I'm from New Orleans and um, and have spent a little bit of time there. You are also the editor of, most recently, the Social Justice Commentary, published by the CCAR, which we'll talk about in a little while. But for now, if it's okay, let's let's talk Parsha. Uh, so the Torah portion this week is Pekudei. We're reading the end of the book of Exodus. We're bringing this book of Shemot to an end. And it talks about largely the the finishing touches of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle. We We read about the creation of some of the final pieces of the Mishkan, including the clothing of the priests and some other things. We read about the Mishkan actually being assembled. And then finally, we get this image of God's presence coming to rest on the tabernacle, the image of God as a cloud by day and a fire by night, and that every time God's presence descended onto the tabernacle, the people would stay put. And every time it lifted, they would go off on their journeys. Now, one of the things that we read about, as um, you mentioned to me by email, is the breastpiece worn by the high priest. But in your new book, The Social Justice Commentary, our colleague, Rabbi Craig Lewis, makes a really interesting and creative interpretation of this tradition of the clothing or the, the breastpiece of the high priest. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about the connection he makes, and then we'll talk about what's going on here in this, in this section of the Parsha. Rabbi Lewis describes the breast piece, which is described in the Pasha, um, made up of 12 precious stones, uh, one representing each of the tribes set in three rows, four rows of three, um, framed in gold. And um, the idea of that placement, our commentators say, is that there's no stone at the center, that they all have an equal place on the priestly garment. And the priest is always carrying with him the 12 tribes and always has to be mindful of them. Right. That So these, these 12 stones represent the 12 tribes. And they're 12 different stones, right? And it even lists the names of the stones 
I can't even pronounce all of these, but chrysolite and an emerald and a turquoise and an amethyst and an agate. So it tells us what they are, and it tells us that they're meant to be on the priest's person whenever he is performing ritual in the temple. Correct, and thereby carrying all of the children of Israel with him. You know, they, they each have an equal place, and, and Rabbi Lewis reflects that the reality is that not everything is equal with the tribes. Um, they don't get equal possessions of land when they are, are to settle the land. They don't have an equal place where they encamp around the tent of meeting uh, during their desert wanderings. However, on this garment, they, they all have a, an, a, an equally important place. And Rabbi Lewis then goes on to draw a lesson that is about equity more than it is about equality. And he says that the stones, if they stand for different people, and, and he did a little work in gemology, by the way, in order to write this. And, and he found, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read just a tiny bit, for proper presentation, each gem demands its own unique treatment before being displayed, and ongoing maintenance for each gem is likewise unique. Cleaning gem agents used to polish amethyst could cause, cause turquoise to fade. Heat treatment used on rubies could prove harmful to porous gems like lapis lazuli. Brushes used to clean emeralds are not recommended for use on carnelian. So if all, all gems were handled uniformly with the exact same resources or equal quantities, some would shine brightly while others would be dimmed into oblivion. He makes this an, an analogy from those gemstones to students. I think he's making it really primarily to students in, in the public school setting, setting, in the American school setting, of the reality that if you offer the same resources to each child, you're going to end up with um, what Jonathan Kozel calls, and, and Rabbi Lewis quotes him, savage inequalities. <laughs> because different students with different backgrounds, with different ed learning styles, with different educational needs, with different parental resources, each child is going to need something different to achieve and to shine brightly, to use his metaphor from the, from, from the uh, breastplate. Right. It's a beautiful metaphor because the, the end product here is a row of 12 equal looking stones. But anyone who knows anything about gems knows that in order to produce 12 equal looking gems, you would have to treat them and handle them in 12 very different ways, which means that each gem is being handled as a, as a unique individual. And so his message, which is really powerful, is that students are the same. In order to yield the same results, in order to yield equal results, you actually can't treat students or schools equally, that it costs more to educate students in lower income areas. It simply does. So that when we fund schools the same in different parts of a city or different parts of a state, that we're not actually providing equal treatment to the students in those different schools or different school districts. By the way, this is true in our Jewish educational environments as well. Um, the students don't come in with the same and the resources that we, we need to apply um, to and for each student aren't uh, going to be identical in order to achieve optimal results for each child. Right, because they're not coming from the same places. They're not in possession of the same resources or the same privileges, and they don't have the same learning needs. And this is true 
from a socioeconomic perspective, which I think is largely the point that Rabbi Lewis is making, but it's also true from a learning perspective and in ter- just in terms of the way that we treat students, that every student deserves to be seen as an individual who has different needs than every other student in, in, in a given setting. Correct. You know, my my son went to the famous uh, and uh, in some ways infamous Little Rock Central High School. And Little Rock Central High School is an amazing school where in many decades past the desegregation crisis of 1957, and yet it's many schools within a school. Um, it has a magnet AP program. And yet it's got students who have difficulty reading. It has students who are excelling in the AP program, which they wouldn't be able to do if they hadn't had um, interventions for their learning differences. Or and other students who wouldn't who are excelling in the AP program who wouldn't be able to have that if they didn't get free and reduced price to uh, uh, breakfast and lunch every day. And there are other students who'll never be in an AP classroom who are thriving towards successful adulthood at Central High School because of what they're being offered in classes for kids who struggle with basic reading and math, um, who don't have educational resources at home and and, uh, and don't have the support and don't come in with the abilities um, and the advantages uh, that my son did. And so what I have seen in real life at Little Rock Central High School has really impressed me along the lines of exactly what Rabbi Lewis has, has described of the different kind of resources directed at different children with different needs, each of whom then can shine brightly to use this metaphor. Yeah, so in the end, the message here, to me, sounds a little bit similar than the message of that passage in the Talmud uh, from Tractate Sanhedrin, which says that a single life is worth an entire world. That anyone who destroys a single life is considered as though they destroyed an entire world. And by the same token, anyone who sustains a single life is considered to have sustained an entire world. And the idea there is that every life is of infinite worth. Every person is of infinite worth, which I think really translates into this message that we're seeing here, that every person is a precious gem. Every person deserves to shine brightly, and it takes something different to help every person shine brightly. And if you think about it, it's true in, in ways that go far beyond school. It's true in congregations and communities. Different people need different resources, if you will, from their rabbis, from their educators, from their cantors, from their leadership, from their communities. Um, I'm an officer of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. I've, I've used all the texts from Rabbi Lewis's work in a whole other context to talk with fellow board members about the reality that different rabbis need different uh, resources from the CCAR so that every rabbi can shine. That this is a, a message about looking to help every single person achieve the best they can, starting from unequal places and therefore needing unequal resources to to, to really um, succeed. Amen. And that, I think, is a perfect place for us to take a break. So, uh, Rabbi Barry Block, if I can ask you to hang on for just one second, we'll take a break and we'll come back and continue this conversation. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. 
I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. So we're back. And at this point, let me introduce you a little more fully. Uh, as I mentioned before, you are the rabbi of Congregation B'nai Israel in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I know you've been there for about nine years. I also know that you are the editor of the just recently released Social Justice Torah Commentary, which I'm going to ask you about in a moment. And you also edited only one year earlier the Musar Torah Commentary. So you're you're pretty much on the track of a book a year these last couple of years, right? Yes, that did happen two years in a row. I don't know if it's going to happen a third year in a row, although I do have a future book in mind. But right now I'm really enjoying um, talking about these two. The Musar Torah commentary asks us to look at each parsha about how it can help us do the interior work of tikkun midot, of repairing our souls. And um, one of the lessons I've learned from Musar is that sometimes, and I think this is particularly a challenge in Reformed Judaism, that we rush to tikkun olam without first uh, focusing on our own souls, on what our own imbalances are that uh, that might throw us off when we go to do the work of tikkun olam. So the order um, is deliberate. It's interesting that you bring that up, especially in the context of what we've been talking about here, this idea that we all have our own inner set of needs. So if you think about the gems, then as not those students in our classrooms, but rather as ourselves, then I, then I know that in order to do the work I want to do in the world, I have to be taking care of myself in certain ways. And that includes self-care. And it could include the kinds of habit formation and, um, and midah work that are involved in Musar, but that my combination of work is different from your combination of work, is different from everybody else's. And it comes back again to that idea that we're each unique individuals and we need to be doing the work of our own souls in order to be doing the work we want to do in the world. That's absolutely right. Everybody has their own curriculum. I, I, I love to tell a story that comes from the very first time that I was practicing Musar. And I had um, a chavruta who was another rabbi, uh, a study partner who was another rabbi. And we were coming up to the Midah of Zrizut, which is hard to translate. I, I like to translate it as oomph, but that doesn't, it's not much of a, of a, of a word. Um, of, of, uh, it's often translated alacrity as, as get up and go. And, uh, you know, I'm, you know, how, how do I produce two, two books in one, in, in one year? Well, I, I have a lot of Zrizut when a, when a draft of a chapter comes in, I edit it right away and send it off to to uh, my partner at CCR Press. <laughs> and uh, you know, when somebody tells me that they can't write when I've invited them to, I get off an invitation to somebody else to write that chapter the same day. Um, you know, that's that's my zrizut. And this person said, you know, sort of made a joke that that zrizut wouldn't be on my. On, on my curriculum. And then when we actually had studied the text and came back to talk about Zerizut, it was about ritual observance. And that's not something that I have a whole lot of Zerizut for. And uh, my, my partner was talking about how he needed the Zerizut to say the bracha for, um, 
for for washing his hands every single time he washes his hands and you know that that's not a a um ritual that that's high on my list of of, of things that it's that's important and 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 it occurred to me that 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 is only the representative of other rituals that I actually may think are important but that for which I don't have a lot of Zerizut that I that I'm I'm a quick email responder, but I may not be so quick to uh, to assure that I uh, that, that I follow through on on ritual matters very quickly. Yeah. So then everybody does have their own curriculum. I really appreciate that message and that language of curriculum because I think we're always sort of putting ourselves into place. There, there's a story. Uh, from the Hasidim, and I now can't remember which Hasidic master tells it, but the story is of the, um, the, the, the Chazan, the prayer leader who goes to the Rebbe the day before Yom Kippur and says, Rebbe, can I leave early today? Can I leave the Beit Midrash early, the house of study early, so I can go home and put my prayer book in order for Yom Kippur tomorrow? And the Rebbe says back to him, the prayer book is always in order. It's your soul that you need to put in order. So, I like this this message again of that the musar leads to the leads to the social action and that's the order you wrote your books or that you edited your books in because there's the internal work that leads to the external work but I think actually it's dynamic I think that when we do the external work we're also doing the work of chikun hanefesh of repairing our own souls at the same time uh, so tell me about the social justice Torah commentary what what is the social justice Torah commentary and where what was the impetus for this book. The impetus comes from colleagues. You know, often when I tell this story, the person who reflects it back says congregants, but but really colleagues who've said to me that they preach Torah, not politics. And yes, there are congregants and members of communities who'll say to their rabbi, Rabbi, we want to hear um, we want to hear Torah, not politics. And that sets up a false dichotomy. My own piece is on Parshat Kedoshim, the Holiness Code. And the Holiness Code interweaves ritual commandments, like about where you can put up uh, an altar and what can't be near the altar and how you how you have to handle the sacrifice, with purely ethical commandments about setting aside a portion of your field for those who are in need. I say purely ethical commandments, except for that the way that they're interwoven with ritual ones makes clear that that all of this is a ritual is a religious requirement. Torah, from the beginning, establishes a social order, establishes social justice, establishes how a community is supposed to organize itself, in particular to care for the most vulnerable in its midst and those who may have the least voice in their midst. So the social justice Torah commentary is both a refutation of and an antidote to those who say, Rabbi, we wanna hear um, Torah, not politics. So it's a refutation in that here we have 54 chapters, one on each parsha, in which the authors are making an, a social justice argument firmly grounded in Torah. But it's an antidote also because there can be a tendency among those of us, and I include myself, who make Jewish social justice arguments to base those arguments on 
a single phrase from the Torah or one single idea and, and to do so very loosely, you know, the, on the on important and sacred notions like everyone's created in the image of God. Um, justice, justice shall you pursue. Remember the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, but not to dig more deeply into what those or other teachings of the Torah uh, might have to offer. And so what you find when you open the, the social justice Torah commentary are exercises in which, which uh, the contributors have gone way beneath the surface, have examined not only the statement at, at the surface, justice, justice shall you pursue, but the commentary and the tradition of understanding that and, and what, what modern commentators might say about it and, and, and really done the Torah work to develop the social justice argument. Yeah, and the chapter that we talked about today is a great example where Rabbi Craig Lewis uh, has clearly studied Torah, dug deeply into Torah and into the commentator's understanding of what these 12 gems are and come up with a message that, let's be honest, the Torah is not talking about educational equity when it's talking about the 12 gems. And yet what we're doing here is what commentators have always done, which is to read important contemporary messages into and out of the Torah's text. And that in, in many ways has been what Judaism has been about for thousands of years. We read the Torah through interpretive eyes. We see that the Torah cares about social justice. It's really integral to the message of Torah. And we find places where the Torah can be, can be found to teach these important messages that, that matter in the world that we're living in today. And, and so it turns out, as you point out, it turns out that one can dig deeply and one can do midrash on their own. That's really what Rabbi Lewis is doing here and what I imagine all the authors in, in your book are doing is they're doing midrash. And you can transform the Torah's integral social justice message into one that um, th that speaks today, that speaks to the world that we're living in. You know, if I could give an example that turns to next week's Torah portion, that's a different kind of example from, from Rabbi Lewis's, and that is Rabbi Mary Zamor writes on Parashat Vaikra, which, which is the first portion in the book of Leviticus. And she's talking about the priests who are offering all these different sacrifices. And she's she quotes from Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3, if it is the anointed priest who has incurred guilt so that blame falls upon the people, he shall offer for the sin of which he is guilty a bull of the herd without blemish as a purgation offering to the eternal. In other words, that a, a priest who has committed sin is not one who can stand there as the exemplar to the people. And as she quotes Rabbi Shai Held, who says, like it or not, we learn from our leaders and so do our people. And from this, and much more than, than I can say in just a few minutes, Rabbi Zamor constructs an argument about the importance of our holding our Jewish leaders to a high standard. And she talks about what, um, what she calls the productive perpetrator, the person whom we allow to get away with all sorts of bad behavior, whether it's sexual harassment or it's bullying or worse or, um, or somewhere in between, 
um, we let them get away with it because of all of the wonderful things they do for our Jewish organizations and institutions on the, uh, alongside that. And, um, and that we have to put up with that no longer, that we have to hold our leaders to the kind of standards to which the priests held themselves from, from Leviticus to this day. It's a really a reminder of what Ecclesiastes says that in Chadash Takatashamish, there's nothing new under the sun, and that the Torah understands in many ways the struggles that we have in our modern world. Struggles about leadership, struggles about um, about education, whatever it is, is, is the topic that we're talking about here. So let me ask you about social justice in your rabbinate, because you're not just an author, you're also a congregational rabbi. So what is the role that social justice has played in your life as a as a rabbi and as a member of a, of a Jewish congregation? You know, I grew up in the reform movement. I grew up at Congregation Beth Israel in Houston and, and then really was uh, was most introduced to social justice as a part of, of uh, Reform Judaism uh, through Green Family Camp and, and NIFTY. Um, and and uh, it's always been an important part of who I am as a rabbi. I served for a number of years in San Antonio, where I was the chair of the board of, of a Planned Parenthood affiliate. And, and there are a couple of pieces in social justice Torah commentary about reproductive justice. Um, really brilliant and important work done by uh, Liz Hirsch on the one hand and, and uh, Josh Fixler and, and uh, Emily Langowitz in a co-written chapter on the other. And I became very active in, in uh in, in the struggle for equality um, for LGBTQ folks. I was ordained in 1991. And uh, so, uh, you know, long before we had, uh, we, we had sa legally sanctioned uh, same-sex marriage in this country. And, and uh, I, I've been very involved in, in those, those pursuits. I moved to Little Rock, Arkansas nine years ago and um, racial justice, is very much at the forefront here. Uh, we have uh, a local school district that is majority black, and we had a democratically elected school board that was taken over by the state. Um, our state, which is run largely by white men from Northwest Arkansas, um, took over our school board and put one a uh, man from rural northern Arkansas in charge of our school district, um, one white man uh, with no educational background. And I became very deeply involved uh, as, an, I would say, as an outspoken ally. In other words, I, I had to learn allyship, which is the in, which is the force of, of the uh, piece on Parashat Ba'alotcha by uh, Imani Chapman and Rabbi Ellen Lippman. Um, and to be an ally to the Black community, standing up for racial justice in our school district and bringing back the school district to local control by, once again, a democratically elected Black majority school, school board to, to govern our own schools and to assure that, that we can make educational progress for every child here. And for you, the work that you're doing, is it Jewish work? Is it an outgrowth of your Jewishness and your commitment to Torah? It is absolutely. Every bit of it is an outgrowth of my of my Jewish work. And that's why I did the social justice Torah commentary, is to say, look, th these principles are all found in Torah. And we are grounded deeply in Torah. I want to tell a little anecdote, though, and it has to do with, with the, the subject you're asking about, but also about 
growth over the course of a rabbinate, which is that I was asked questions by the rabbinic search committee in Little Rock that made clear to me that when they had spoken with folks in San Antonio, uh, where I had come from before, that, that uh, they were told something on the order of, if you don't want to hear politics from the Bema, don't, don't hire Rabbi Block. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I define politics from the Bema, by the way, as, as a violation of the, the Johnson Amendment, as, as endorsing or opposing a candidate or a political party. And I, I would never do that. But, but in terms of, of advocating for social justice from the Bema, I do that frequently. The, the leadership of, of the congregation, and the, in particular that rabbinic search committee, and I talked about that, and I realized the importance of assuring that I didn't stand up and give a talk that could be given by, let's say, a pundit, by, by, a, by, by an op-ed writer, that, I, that when I give a sermon on a Friday night that is on a social justice to, uh, topic, that it be firmly grounded in the Torah. So my own orientation over these last nine years in terms of how I make my social justice arguments as deeply based in Torah informs what I was trying to do in putting together this book. What happens when your message is not one that everyone in your congregation agrees with? What happens if you have a mixed, let's call it a politically mixed group, and you're delivering a social justice message, but it's not one that's necessarily unanimously agreed upon? Well, I think that that's uh, that's every sermon uh, that that there's some people who who disagree, and you know what's important is to be respectful and to hear what people have to say, uh, and to be respectful in response, and to and to acknowledge that reasonable people can disagree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fair enough, and 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 that ultimately, I think the values that come from Torah teach us about the importance of repairing the world. We don't always agree on how to do that, but that there is common Absolutely. ground. Yeah, there is common ground to be found. Um, let me ask you a little bit about being a rabbi in the South. I'm from the South also, as you know, although I serve as a rabbi in the great white North, it's a really different environment, both climate wise and politically from where you are, but I'm from Louisiana. Well, I was born in Alabama. I grew up in Mississippi and Louisiana. I'm from a lot of places not far from where you live. So tell me about being a rabbi in, in Arkansas. Well, you know, what's interesting is um, I am the rabbi of a congregation, the overwhelming majority of, of whom are progressive. Um, and so I don't think that that's an experience that most of my colleagues in the, in the South have. Moreover, I am the rabbi of a congregation with a very rich social justice history. Uh, my predecessor from 1926 to 1963, Rabbi Ira Sanders, retired the summer I was born. And in 1926, when he arrived in Little Rock, he got on the streetcar, on the back of the streetcar, and refused in the colored section, quote unquote, in other words, and, and refused to move. And the conductor mm -hmm. told him to move. 1926? Um, 1926. Okay, he was he was a very strong advocate for desegregation in 1957 in the Central um, High Crisis. Uh, he, he did he did a tremendous number of things. He established the first social work school in in Arkansas as an integrated social uh, as an integrated school until the University of Arkansas shut that down. Um, so, uh, so he integrated a library here, the public library, and I I don't imagine that he was uniform 
formally supported by the congregation or by the congregants. However, he was by and large supported by and revered by the congregation. And part of the public story about the Central High Crisis is that women, uh, the Women's Emergency Committee, which was not only Jewish women, it was women from throughout Little Rock, uh, really had a great deal to do with with re reopening the schools here as, as integrated schools. And many of the leaders of the Women's Emergency Committee were members of Congregation B'nai Israel. So I, I serve a somewhat unique congregation in, in the South, mm -hmm. and I feel very blessed to do so. It doesn't mean we don't have members who have a very different outlook than, than I do um, about social justice issues, but I have a whole lot of, of partners on, on these, these issues. And, and I know that you've had a bit of a journey personally as well with regard to issues of, of racial justice and your own rabbinate. Would you mind telling us a bit about that? It's interesting. You know, um, my parents are silent generation. I was raised in Houston, as were both of my parents. And neither of my parents was involved in the civil rights movement or anything of that nature. Although when asked about it when I was a child, they, they said they, you know, they agreed with it and that sort of thing. But, but they had a sort of awakening in the 70s that most of their peers did not have. And, uh, and my parents became progressives in the 70s in, in ways that, that were not matched in their social group. And uh, so I, I started to be very aware of, of, of issues that they were. I also started to ask as a, as a teen in the 70s, or maybe a little bit of a preteen, about our family, because I knew that our family had been in the South for a very long time. And a lot of families that have been in the South for a long time brag about their Confederate history, you know, the, the Confederate veterans in their history or, or, or whatnot, or the plantations that they used to have or whatever. I'd never heard anything like that. I started to ask, lo and behold, a couple of my great-great-grandfathers did fight on the side of the South in the Civil War. Uh, one part of my family, I have a very unusual um, American Jewish heritage. One, I have an ancestor who, who was an American Revolution um, wow. uh, <laughs> veteran, right? So, so um, in the New York militia, actually, but, but not very long after the family went South. And... Um, Actually, during the, the, the assembling of the Social Justice Torah Commentary, I received an email from a cousin I'd never met, distant cousin I'd never met, who had learned that an ancestor of ours, as it happens, it's my great-great-great-grandmother, that her name appears in the 1860 Louisiana slave census as enslaver. Mm. Um, and, and it, you know, I wasn't shocked that I had ancestors who were enslavers. She, she later found um, an ad from the Natchez, Mississippi newspaper um, in which our great-great-grandfather, Isaac Schlenker, whose Bible I have, I have, I have Isaac Schlenker's family Bible, um, which is really quite the, you know, it was very meaningful in a positive way to me to have, have a, you know, these, the family Bible and, Reform prayer books that go back five generations, but but at the same time, there's another part to that legacy, and it is this this ad in the Natchez newspaper. Isaac Schlenker is putting up um, a, a, a young black woman for sale, 
And I, it's a podcast, so people can't see the scare quotes I'm using about, you know, for sale. You know, it's a, you could sell a human being in 1861. Um, perhaps the same woman who's listed in the 1860 um, slave census as the quote-unquote property of his mother-in-law, who's, we, all that we know about her is that she was 24 and uh, her race is marked as M for mulatto. So reckoning with that part of a heritage that was always has always felt positive to me in terms of being deeply rooted here in the South and seeing it as um, from having been being part of a family that was oppressors. Uh, to me, it, it, it conveys a particular responsibility to uh, work on social justice and particular racial justice. How did it feel to learn these things about your family? You said you weren't surprised. Were you disappointed? Were you, um, were, 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 did it make you sad? Or did it really simply energize? You talked about Zrizut, this energization. Did it energize you to want to do better in the world today? I think it just energized me. I, 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 the only reason it didn't sadden me is because it, it, it didn't surprise me. Uh, you know, they, they were white people in the South in that era, and they weren't poor. So I imagined that somebody might have been an enslaver. And I'm sure she wasn't the only one. That I have, There are other branches of my family that were in the, the, the South uh, at that same time and uh, had, the, had the financial wherewithal to, to uh, be, be enslavers. Um, so, so it didn't sadden me just because it didn't surprise me. Um, but it is, it is a reckoning with what it means to have this heritage. It's similar to how I felt when I went with the CCAR to Montgomery and to the Equal Justice Initiatives, uh, you know, Peace and Justice Memorial. And every county or parish where my grandparents and great-grandparents and great-grandparents lived throughout the entire lynching period. Every single one of those counties and parishes is, is listed. By the way, I don't picture my, my, my great-grandparents, you know, lynching anybody. That, that wouldn't have been who they were, but they were bystanders for sure. And we have, an, we have responsibility not to be bystanders. So yes, I think it conveys a particular responsibility to me. And when I think about reparations, what does reparations mean? Okay, I, I, I think that's a complicated question that I'm not totally prepared to answer. Rabbi Judy Schindler writes about, about reparations in the Social Justice Story Commentary. But what, what I know is that we have to reorder our society to reckon with what we've done for over 400 years here. And that there are people today and largely the white society today in America that is still experiencing the privilege that it gained on the backs of people who were oppressed for 400 Correct. years. Which actually brings us back to the message of the Parsha that we started with half an hour ago, which is that people are starting in different places and that to give the same resources to people who have had wildly different stories of how they got here is actually mm -hmm. not equity in the end, that it produces a different result in the person who was oppressed than it does from the person who benefited from the oppression. Right. I'm glad you mentioned Rabbi Judy Schindler. She was my senior rabbi in Charlotte, North Carolina, oh, so now oh. I'm going to go read her chapter. If you don't mind, I want to just ask you one more quick question. Um, and it, it, it's very simply, I want to ask you, is there one book that we all need to read? And it could be a Jewish book, 
It could be some other book. It could be about social justice, whatever, other than your book, which we're all going to now read. What would you recommend for all of our listeners? I needed to read The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. I had already read Cast. I think it's a really important book. Both books are really important. And I've, I've read other books about racial justice. Um, I needed to read that book because it was about how Black people needed to leave the South. And so many Black people, of course, did leave the South um, be- between World War I and the, at the end of World War I in the 1970s. She follows three people in particular, and one of them, um, a physician from Monroe, is, is a physician from Monroe, Louisiana. My mother's parents moved from Monroe to Houston shortly before my mother was born. And there is an encounter between um, Dr. Foster, the, the Black man who's getting to, ready to move to California, and Mr. Masser in the store, uh, in a men's clothing store in Monroe. Um, Mr. Masser has to have either been my, my great-grandfather or more likely his brother. And actually, Wilkerson says he meant well, which is a really ringing endorsement for a white person in, in that book. But, um, but, but still, to, to understand how my great-grandfather and his brother were immigrants, by the way, and that, that, um, and, and that, that particular part of the family wasn't here in you know, during slaveholding times of the Civil War, although although his wife's family was, my great-grandmother's family was. But but that as much as we talk about that immigrant experience and the disadvantages they came from and where what they had to come up from, it's not what it's it's not what their black neighbors had to deal with, which was something that Mr. Masser in that in that interaction in the, the warmth of other signs doesn't quite understand. He really wants Dr. Foster to stay in Monroe, I think, for the good of, of, of the black community in Monroe and to establish a black hospital in Monroe. But he doesn't understand that even though he came from from nowhere and, and was able to establish himself, that a black person didn't have that opportunity in Monroe. Which brings us back full circle again to the message of the Parsha. Um, well, Rabbi Barry Block, I know you have to go lead a staff meeting. The rabbi's work never ends. Um, but I want to thank you for spending some time with me today, for teaching us a bit and, and talking some Torah with me. Thank you. I love your podcast and I'm, I'm honored to be on. Thank you so much. Thank you. My thanks again to Rabbi Barry Block for joining me in conversation today. Again, his book is The Social Justice Torah Commentary, published by the Central Conference of American Rabbis. And the book that he recommended is The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. Thanks to all of you for listening in. Don't forget to leave a review or a rating and join us in the Facebook group. And I'll see you next week.